Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Uh, So listen, I've brought everyone in the room a gift today. Yeah. Um, It's just the kind of guy I am. It is going to require you to move because I can't bring the gift to you. But in this bowl is a whole bunch of rocks. And I've brought a rock specifically for each one of you. So this is going to get slightly unruly in a second, but I want you to come up here, and you can pick one rock. There's great selection, especially if you're into one particular uh, color scheme. And if you're joining us online, I'll I'll mail you a rock. Um, Wait, uh, Julio will mail you a rock. We'll do that instead. But... Uh, come up in a moment here and grab a rock, and then once you get it, you're going to take it and you're going to put it in your right shoe. And people have sandals. Okay, so it's in my shoe now. And then you can go back to your seat. So go, come collect my most generous gift to you this morning. And as you pick it up, deliver it to people who maybe can't, can't grab it themselves. But put it in there, and then as you're walking, feel what that feels like in your shoe. You can do a jumping jack if you want with the rock in your shoe. (laughs) I just had... I just had somebody threaten to throw a rock at me. <laughs> so this is already going well. I'll have to remember never to have a sermon where I give everyone tomatoes or eggs or something at the start. But I want you to feel that. If you, if you put it in your shoe, I want you to feel what it feels like. It's not really a big deal, right? It's just kind of in there. Uh, it's a little bit annoying, but it's not like it's going to kill you just to have this rock in your shoe. So um, let's get to some more scripture. And um, if I'm going to give you a key for this message, it's not just to listen to what I'm saying. This might not be anything brand new. It might be a story that's very familiar to you. But I want, what I want you to do is actually ask God to go, 
okay, can you speak to me today? What do you want to talk to me about? And I believe that during this message, God's going to take his finger and just point to one small thing in your life. Maybe two, but probably just one. So if you got your Bible, you can flip with me to um, 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read this out. I'm going to read it pretty quick because we're going to read actually uh, most of this passage here. So stick with me. Rapid scripture reading coming up. So it says, verse 1, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was looking on the roof or was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, that is, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having had her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Long. Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next day, uh, and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. We're going to finish this in just a sec. But to summarize the first part again, uh, David stays home. He's on his roof. He sees a woman bathing. He said, she looks nice, invites her to the palace. She ends up pregnant. Then David invites her husband back from the war to try and cover up her being pregnant by having him around at that time. This guy 
goes, there's no way I would do that. Isn't it kind of odd? This guy seems to have a bit more integrity than David in this story. Very strange. But he refuses to go home. So we keep going, verse 14. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech son of Gideon killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close? Then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem, gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out and chased us in the open field, he said. And as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So a lot, a lot going on in this chapter, no doubt. So give that rock a little jiggle in your shoe. Is it feeling better, worse, the same? So what we find in this story is a man who brings incredible destruction and pain to himself and the people around him, and he nearly shipwrecks his life, not just because of one big or massive failure or sin, but because of this compounding effect of decisions that he makes over time. So there's a ton of different things that we can learn from this story, but the first thing is this. It starts with the little decisions. So I just want you to ponder, do you think when David was a young man, he thought, oh man, when I grow up, I want to be a lust-filled, adulterous, scheming, conniving, manipulative, vindictive, murdering adulterer. I don't think if you asked him, that would have been his thought, right? I'd hazard to guess that if you ask a kid when they're little, what do you want to be when you grow up? They don't go, oh, man, I hope I shipwreck my life. 
I hope I end up wrapped up in addiction. I hope I, I, I hope I end up murdering someone. I hope I, I end up addicted to pornography. I don't think a kid would think that way if you asked them. They wouldn't say that. But then in this story, that's where we find David. So what happened to him and what happens to us the same way? Whenever we read the Bible, we see this the story, the long story of a person's journey but we find that the same things that happened to David happen to us. It starts with a few little decisions, and in this story, it starts in verse 1 of chapter 11. It says there, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go to war, normally go to war, David sent Joab, David sent someone else and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroy the army, lay siege to a city. However, David stayed behind. So in the season when kings are supposed to do this, David did the opposite thing. So we see what what ends up happening, right? He ends up committing adultery with Bathsheba. She ends up getting pregnant. Then he goes, oh man, how am I going to cover this up? And he goes, well, um, obviously you can only hide a pregnancy for so long before somebody starts showing. So I've got to get Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back here so they can be together, and then I'm clean, right? I'm in the clean. Nobody sees it. That doesn't work, so then what does he do? He goes, well, I mean, if Uriah were to die in war, then, then at that point, it'd be much easier to cover it up because then I could say, well, I'm just taking in this poor widow, and I'll look after her now, right? So a man gets killed, other Israelites get killed as collateral damage, and all of this started because when kings no normally go to war, David decided to stay home. It started with one little decision that then compounded into something much bigger. So it's rarely a mystery for us when we look back on life how sin or compromise compounds and begins to be something that so easily trips us up. We can see these patterns that are in David's life happen in our lives. Have you ever covered up your own sin so people wouldn't find out? We get this story. Um, so what's interesting with this rock in your shoe is that um, 
it starts off as something that's just a little bit annoying. But it's something that can cause actual real trouble. If you've ever gone hiking before for a long walk and you feel a tiny pebble in your shoe and you go, oh, then I have to take my boot off. I'd have to shake this thing out and get this rock out. Uh, it, doesn't, it seems like too much work for a tiny pebble. But there's actually uh, folks that end up with massive infections in a foot because they didn't take one tiny rock out of their shoe early. This tiny thing starts to rub against one spot. Candace, you're a hiker. You get this. It starts to rub against one little spot, gets red, maybe a bit swollen, right? And then eventually, maybe that skin starts to break just a bit, or you get a blister, and you end up with potentially quite a massive problem just because it's something that you left undealt with in your shoe. So I found that in my own life, it's rarely these big catastrophic failures that start me on a path to destruction. It's always these little, tiny things. So a few questions for you to ponder today. Um, How are you doing with the little, tiny sins in your life today? Right, like we can, we can always think of the big ones, right? How are you doing with the little stuff? The stuff that you maybe go, well, this isn't really a big deal. I've got this one that's a big deal. But how are you doing with the little ones? Tiny compromises, things in your daily life that you just, it's not worth it to take my whole boot off for this. Sure, it's a problem, but uh, who can be bothered? So why does this matter? Why do the little things matter? It matters because the little decisions that we make begin to shape our identity. It begins to shape how we see ourselves. So we see it in the story uh, of David. If you recall all these things that you might know about King David, a few things to summarize it. He's anointed by God and by the prophet Samuel to be the king of Israel. He's called out from his brothers. He's this tiny, smallest kind of runt of the litter, and God says, I'm picking you to be king. And and when he's anointed, it, it, it says that the Spirit of God came on him from that day forward. Now, this is the same... A boy where we read about him killing lions and bears with just a slingshot. This is the same guy who killed Goliath, the giant. One of the most famous Bible stories of all time and a Sunday school classic. He wrote so many of the Psalms that we actually sing in church to this day. He wrote those lyrics. He was a worshiper. You find twice in the scriptures where he's referred to as a man after God's own heart. So when I think about David, this is who I think of. He's this awesome, 
mighty man of God who led the armies of Israel to victories, and he was a worshiper and filled with the Spirit of God. Yet we see him making decisions here that are completely contrary to how we usually think of David. So instead of being a man that he was, the man of God, he he was made to be, and the king he was anointed to be, and the leader that he was called to be, he was making these little compromises that began to chip away at his true identity. So you can think about it like this. If he was a man of God, if he was a man of God, why is he having an affair? Right? That's not what a man of God does. He doesn't sleep with somebody else's wife. If he's a man of God, why is he arranging a hit on one of his own men? Why is he arranging to have somebody murdered? If he's the king of Israel, why wasn't he leading the army of Israel into war? If he's the king of Israel, why is he at home when he should be with the army? And if he was a leader, why was he abdicating his leadership to Uriah the Hittite, who showed more leadership in this story than David ever did. He said, there's no way I'm going home to wine and to a fine meal when my brothers are in a field fighting and dying. David abdicates his leadership. And if he's a leader, why wasn't he leading? It's like he was in the midst of like an identity crisis where We know what was said of him. We know who he was. But what we find in this story is just a guy who lost sight of it all. And it started living for far lesser things. So you can't allow sin in your life and not expect it to bring a harvest. Right? You plant a seed of sin. You can't be surprised when it's like, oh, no, it's grown. Now, it sounds silly to say, but why do we believe the opposite is true? No, this won't grow. It's fine. You can't tolerate compromise in your life and then uh, act surprised when your life has, in fact, been compromised. What? How how did I end up here? Well, Well, you know. You know exactly how you ended up there. You can't walk in the opposite direction of Jesus and then wonder why you're not close to him, right? If Jesus is walking this way and I'm running this way, then all of a sudden we come to him and we go, God, I feel so far from you. And he's going, yeah, I was going this way. You went this way, like... And that, the, the crazy thing, and I'm reminded of this so often, is like you have 178 degrees where you're at least moving in his general direction, right? Like if Jesus is going that way, 
178 degrees, where I'm at least generally going in that direction. But there's 182, like I have got to commit hard to not following Jesus. The little decisions that we make begin to shape what we think about ourselves, how we see ourselves, and it starts to change what we believe about who we are. So at this point, David wasn't thinking, ah, but God anointed me. He put his spirit on me. He was living for lesser things. So in our culture today, too, this is a side note, but there's not a lack of things that uh, attempt to erode our sense of identity, right? So it doesn't take long, like you just hop on your phone, scroll through Instagram, and you think, well, I'm out of shape, I'm broke, I'm unsuccessful, I'm unmotivated, and I generally feel like a complete loser relative to what I see on the screen. Anyone identify? So if you want to feel encouraged, always go to social media, (laughs) right? Because it's real. It's so real. But like that's just one example of how quickly, right, we just erode something. So this morning, I want to remind you, regardless of where you are, and I want to hit a bit of a reset button So if you feel or you've believed some lies about yourself, I want to give you some truth right now. You aren't an accident and you're not here by fluke or by chance. Psalm 139.13 says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. He knew you before you were born. You're not here by fluke or chance. You're not a mistake and you're not an accident. You're God's masterpiece and he has good things planned for you. Ephesians 2.10, it says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. When he looks at you, he goes, you're exactly who I wanted you to be. You're exactly how I designed you. And I've got good things planned for you. Oh, and by the way, if you're here and you're older and you're going, well, I think you did. Okay, the promises of God don't apply to you at all. No. He looks at you and he's got good things planned for you still. He's thinking about you all the time. You're not forgotten or insignificant. And I hope you're hearing this, but not even just like, oh, I heard that. But like, this is how he sees you. I'm not, I didn't write this up. I didn't, 
I didn't take some inspirational poster with an eagle flying and somebody else's good idea. This is what he thinks about you. So regardless of who's been defining who you are, who you should be, where you feel like you're lacking, I'm trying to communicate to you how God sees you and what he says about you, which is far greater than the voice of anyone or anything else on earth. You're not forgotten or insignificant. Psalm 139.17, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. That's how much he's thinking about you. Not somebody else, you. You're on his mind. He doesn't just tolerate you. He celebrates you, and you're worth celebrating. Zephaniah 3.17, he will take delight in you with gladness. He doesn't just look at you and say, well, they aren't dead, at least, I guess. That's something. No, he celebrates you. With gladness, he takes delight in you. And John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He loves you. So are those truths reflected in your life and how you're living? Are they, are they reflected? Do you see that in your life? Or are you living for lesser things? There's so much more here that could be said, but the little decisions that we make begin to shape our identity. So one of the last times we'll check, but give the rock a shake. Is it annoying yet? I guess you aren't walking or anything. You can just kind of sit there with it. So um, anytime I get to speak to, especially like younger people, teenagers, the thing I'm always really um, concerned about is not what happens that day, but who they become in the five years later or 10 years or 20 years later, right? What we do today shapes and impacts who we are further down the road. So today, regardless of how old you are or what you want to be when you grow up, I don't really care as much about what you do. I care really about who you are. And that starts with the little decisions that we make today. So the little decisions shape our identity, which in turn shapes the legacy that's going to come out of our lives. So this means that we can't live foolishly now and expect a different return in years to come. And this is things that we know, right? I can't just pound donuts every day and not expect to someday uh, look down and having reaped the rewards of eating donuts every day. It's a ridiculous example, but we do it with other things, and we don't think there'll be a return, right? 
So I care about how you see yourself. I care about the kind of uh, parent that you might one day become or grandparent. And I care about the impact that you're going to have on the people that you're going to meet in your lifetime. I care about the legacy that your life is going to leave behind. I care about how your life impacts your coworkers or students that you're going to school with as well. So in David's story, one of the things that I love is that we see him in this passage at his lowest point, but it wasn't the final chapter and David's story wasn't over, right? This isn't the last thing that we read about him. And uh, you might be here and you identify with this point in David's story. You're looking at your life potentially going, oh, man, uh, yeah, I'm feeling pretty shipwrecked at this point with life. And I just have to remind you that your story isn't over. This isn't the final chapter. Um, it's a weird thing how we manage time, Right? We, we see this situation that we're in right now, catastrophic. Yet, we see people all through Scripture who find themselves in catastrophic places. And we can read ahead, and we love the victories that come later and the overcoming. Um, but when we're in it ourselves, we go, finished. There's nothing more to be done. I'll just give up. But the same way that God writes... These stories that we read and hear, that's how he's writing your life. So if you're here and you're compromised, you've let sin overtake you, you've hidden it, I just have to tell you that your story's not done. It's not over, and there's still far more chapters to come. So don't get overly hung up on short-term failures. Don't condemn yourself. The devil's really good at it. I'm a professional, personal condemner of my own life as well. So don't, don't condemn yourself. Don't sit there and dwell on it. Just decide that, okay, this is a short-term, horrible decision, area of sin, compromise. I'm going to deal with what I need to deal with, and I'm going to get up, and I'm going to keep going back towards following Jesus. David wallowed in it. He started trying to cover it all up. And that's when everything started to come unglued. So, um, Pastor Debbie, could you come to the keys and play something beautiful? Um, so I gave you this rock to put in your shoe. Um, how long are you planning to leave it in there? Do you think you'll leave it in there for an hour? A day? Like a week? A month? Um, 
years. So with sin in your life or any area of compromise, how long are you going to leave that in your life? An hour? A day? A week? A month? Years? This rock might affect my foot, and I'll deal with it within two minutes of finishing this message. <laughs> but this doesn't matter as much as the sin that we tolerate. So why are we more concerned with a rock in our shoe than we are with things that shape the course of our lives shape the legacy that comes after us. So we come full circle back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight, every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. So easily trips us up. And let us run this race with endurance, the race God has set before us. So in recent months, I've observed that the people around me that are growing the most by far are the ones who've come face to face with their own sin and compromise and weakness. And they're flourishing out of a time or an area that literally could have killed them. And it's because they didn't tolerate this thing. They said, I actually can't put this off for another moment, let alone months, days, or years. And they just started dealing with it. And it's messy, and it's ugly, and it's terrible. But it's far better than the outcome. So during this message, I pray that God would point to one area in your life. But I made allowance for maybe two. So the first one is, um, is the negative part, right? So what have you been tolerating or allowing in your life? What are the little sins that so easily trip you up that you need to deal with. Now, I'm not asking about the big one. Usually people go, 
If I can just deal with this one thing, then I can deal with all the other things. It's like being a boxer and going, if I could start with the champ, then I could beat everyone who's worse than them. Why not pick something small and declare war on a small thing in your life that you've been tolerating? Not the biggest one. Maybe the second biggest, third biggest sin area in your life. Has God put his finger on something for you personally? Now, I know it's always easier to to go to the negative, but what about the positive part, right? The same way that sin or compromise will erode your identity, there's decisions that you can make that are going to build you up, that are going to call you more into alignment with how God sees you, with the word that he's spoken over you. Maybe you never pray. Maybe your Bible's at home and it's dusty and you never read it. Could you read two verses a day? Could you read one verse a day? We always uh, have this frustration because we blindly kind of turn away to things that are negative and the slow cumulative effect and we go, no, it won't happen. But then when we choose to do something positive, if it doesn't happen instantly, ah, it's not working, right? But could you add one thing to your life that's going to build you up? So I'm going to pray. She's going to keep playing for a few minutes. And um, I can't tell you what to do. I'm not the boss of you. But I'd suggest that before you leave here today and before you take the rock out of your shoe, could you make a commitment to God about one thing you're going to shift? If you're here with a friend or somebody you trust, you turn to them and say, it's this one. Have them hold you accountable. Tiny shift. Tiny shift. It's going to shape your identity and the legacy that you leave behind. So before you leave, if you want to do that, make that commitment to God to, to say, I got to deal with this one area. So let me pray for you. So God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the story of David that at his lowest, his story wasn't over. Father, I thank you for your conviction and your Holy Spirit that speaks louder than the noise in our lives. And God, I thank you that you're not afraid to point out areas in our lives not to condemn us or to to cause us even to feel guilty, but God, to point out areas that can destroy us because you love us. So Father, today I pray that you would move your finger over every life, over every heart in this room. 
and that, God, you'd point out those things that are weights that we're carrying, that sin that so easily trips us up. And that, God, you'd help us to change one tiny thing in our lives this morning. So, God, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Just take a moment, reflect. And then when you've made a decision, go ahead and pull that rock out of your shoe. And don't put it in your pocket. Don't take it home with you. You can leave it at the front. You can throw it out outside. But if you leave the rock here, you leave sin here, don't drag it back home. Leave it here today. We'll see you next Sunday.